following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. I invite you to open up your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5 this morning as we continue to make our way through our Savior's Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Sermon on the Mount, which is arguably one of the most well-known passages in all of the scriptures, Matthew chapter 5. In this Sermon on the Mount, our Lord Jesus acts and speaks as the new Moses, as he mediates the new Torah to his disciples. The whole sermon centers around what it means to be blessed, what it means to flourish, what it means to be whole. Jesus calls his disciples to an all-encompassing righteousness that is both internal and external. A righteousness that demands and flows out of the new birth, which is brought about by the regenerating power of the Spirit of God, whom God promised to pour out upon his people in and under the new covenant. Again, the righteousness that Jesus calls us to in the Sermon on the Mount is not meant to crush us and drive us to despair so that we seek salvation and justification in him. But rather, Jesus is describing the very righteousness that characterizes life in the kingdom of God and under the new covenant. We saw in the opening words of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins with words of comfort and a pronouncement of blessedness upon those who have, for no other reason other than the mercy and kindness of God, have been brought into the sphere of God's favor and love and saving grace. We saw how last week uh, the ministry of Moses ends on the note of Moses pronouncing God's blessing upon the old covenant people, and now the new and greater Moses begins where the old Moses left off by pronouncing God's blessedness and blessing upon his new covenant people. As we saw in the opening words of the Sermon on the Mount, he begins on this glorious note of blessedness. And he offers his disciples and them alone the upside-down kingdom, a kingdom that is so countercultural to everything we are taught. If you want to be comforted, you ought to be one who is mourning over First and foremost, your sin and the sin of others. If you want to be satisfied, you are to hunger and thirst for righteousness. If you want to see God, you want to keep your heart pure. That pure heart that he gives you in regeneration, you want to fight with all the means of grace to walk in that purity of heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And if you're persecuted... For his sake, he says, consider yourself blessed, divinely favored by my heavenly father. For so they persecuted the prophets who are before you, because your reward is going to be great in heaven. 
Therefore, rejoice and be glad. It's the upside-down kingdom that he offers us. And he reminds us that we and we alone are the salt of the earth. God's agents of purification who, by our message and by our life, serve to purify the world around us. And he informs us that we and we alone are the light of the world whose message and lives serve to expose the darkness of sin and illuminate the way to life and salvation as we point sinners to repentance toward God and to faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we come to verses 17 and following this morning, we move past the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount and onto the main body of the sermon, where Jesus lays out his thesis, his main line of argument And it's this, he came to fulfill the Torah, the law, and the prophets as the new and greater Moses who teaches and leads the people of God in the greater all-encompassing righteousness that characterizes life in and under the new covenant. This means that we, as the new covenant assembly of saints, need to follow our Lord's instruction regarding the true intention of the law, the Torah, and the prophets as he lays out for us in verses 21 through 48. But as we begin in verse 17 this morning, where Jesus brings us, as it were, to the very body of his sermon, I want you to see that he creates somewhat of a bracket within the Sermon on the Mount. Theologians call it an inclusio. It's a bracket where he begins on one thought, it goes, all, it goes you know, far, and then he ends with that same thought. And I want you to see this. For example, look at verse 17 here in chapter 5. This is the first bracket. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's the beginning bracket. And then skip over to chapter 7. And verse 12, and I want you to see how he closes this bracket on the same note of the law and the prophets. Chapter 7, verse 12. He says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So it appears that everything in between chapter 5, verse 12, sorry, chapter 5, verse 17, and chapter 7, verse 12, could be regarded as the main body of the Sermon on the Mount. And everything before this section could be seen as the introduction. Everything after this section could be seen as the conclusion of the sermon, which makes perfect sense because everything after this section points the hearers then and now toward a warning. After chapter 7, verse 12, we are faced with a warning. They can enter the narrow gate or we can enter the broad gate that leads to destruction. We can enter the narrow gate and the narrow way that leads to life or we can enter through the wide gate and the easy path which leads to destruction. Or we can listen to him or we can listen to false prophets who come to us in sheep's clothing. And then the last warning he sets before us is at the end of chapter 7 where we can build on one of two foundations, listening and doing what he says or not. One foundation means wholeness 
and blessedness. The other foundation leads to destruction and disaster. You build your life on shifting sand. You refuse to listen to the Lord's words. And when that eschatological final last day judgment comes, you will suffer eternal ruin. And so I want to begin by considering our Savior's opening thesis and main line of argumentation as he lays it out for us in verse 17. Let's begin. He says, do not think, and the emphasis in the Greek is very emphatic, never allow yourself to think this. Don't even go this way. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. It is acknowledged among scholars that verses 17 through 20 are some of the most difficult verses in all of the Bible. On the surface, when we read them, they appear to be very clear regarding what's being said. Jesus makes the clear assertion that he did not come to do away with the law or the prophets, which is a common way in the Bible of referring to the entire Old Testament, the law, the first five books, and the prophets, everything else. The word abolish means to destroy, to throw down, to overthrow, to tear down. He says, I didn't come to overthrow or destroy or tear down the Old Testament. He says, I came to fulfill the Old Testament. Matthew has already used this word fulfill, pleuroo, six times prior to this, showing in chapters 1 through 4 again and again that Jesus came to fulfill various predictions and prophecies from the Old Testament. The word fulfill in the Greek has to do with completion. Completion. A prophecy or prediction is made hundreds of years prior and then the completion of that prediction or the completion of that prophecy comes later on down the road. And although in much of the Bible, whenever the word fulfillment is used in connection with Jesus, the emphasis is on his actions, his work, fulfilling and completing some prophecy or prediction or type or shadow, the emphasis here in verse 17 isn't so much on Jesus's actions fulfilling anything, but rather it's Jesus's authoritative teaching and instruction as the new and greater Moses that serves to fulfill and complete all of the ethical teaching of the Old Testament. So don't miss this. By his teaching, he came to complete and fulfill the law and the prophets. He came to complete all that has gone and has been said before. You see, as Christians, we believe in the reality of progressive revelation, which means that the Bible came to us progressively over hundreds of years. In other words, God did not choose to give us the entire Bible all at once. He could have. He could have dropped it down from heaven, but he gave us the word, the scriptures, in stages. It came progressively. Alec Motyer, a uh, well-known Old Testament scholar, says, progressive revelation is a movement from truth to more truth, and so to full truth. And this full truth came through the Son of God. And I think Hebrews chapter 1 Verses 1 and 2 illustrates this very well. The writer says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. He is the final word. 
His is the final authority. If we're to understand anything that has gone before, it's to be understood through Him and Him alone. So the best way to understand these verses is that just as Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecies by His person and work, so also He fulfilled the law and the prophets by His teaching and by His instruction. And notice how He honors the Old Testament in verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And so Jesus upholds the authority of the Old Testament scriptures, even down to the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And even down to the least stroke of a pen. That's what these little words mean. The least, the smallest little stroke of a pen. And what he's emphasizing here is that the enduring authority of the Old Testament's authority, as mediated by him, is that which continues. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not the relevance of the scriptures. And then the second until clause in verse 18, he says, until all is accomplished, meaning everything promised and prophesied in the Old Testament must take place. Not one jot or tittle will fail or fall short of fulfillment because God's word is true and he cannot lie. He cannot lie. D.A. Carson points out that the first until clause in verse 18 focuses strictly on the duration of the Old Testament authority. But the second until clause returns to considering its nature. In other words, it reveals God's redemptive purposes and points to their fulfillment, their accomplishment in Jesus and the eschatological kingdom that he is now introducing and will one day consummate. And Jesus goes on in verse 19. He says, Therefore, whoever relaxes or loosens, in the Greek it signifies to, to untie something, whoever unties or loosens or relaxes one of the least of these commandments from the law and the prophets, and then teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You see, this is not a matter of losing your salvation, per se, or being excluded from the kingdom, but simply being regarded as very least and unimportant in the kingdom. And so this poses a huge problem for us we who want to be faithful followers and faithful disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we ensure that we do not relax, loosen, or untie even one of the least of the Old Covenant, Old Testament commands? How do we ensure that we do that? We should want to be great in the kingdom of God, not in the sense of man's, you know, receiving man's praise, but we, we should want to be great in the sense of we're pleasing to the Father, we're pleasing to Christ, we're pleasing to God. We shouldn't want to be considered as least in the kingdom of God, the, 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 the bottom of the barrel in the kingdom, if you will. We should want to have the Father's approval on our lives, his smile over us. And in one sense, we do because of our justification. We're now clothed with the very righteousness of Christ. And so from an imputation standpoint, we've been imputed Christ's righteousness. But as we learn in the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation, it's possible for Christ 
for it to be loved exceedingly and abundantly and infinitely by God, but for him not to be pleased with you because of certain characteristics and qualities. So how do we ensure that we're not relaxing any of these Old Testament laws as new covenant believers? The answer is very simple, friends. We look to Christ and we look to his apostles whom he commissioned, whom he appointed as the final and ultimate interpreters of the Old Testament scriptures. You want to be in a safe place where you're not mishandling the Old Testament? Listen to the Son and listen to his ambassadors. Listen to his apostles. Listen to him. Do what he calls you to do and you'll flourish. The New Testament must always interpret the Old Testament, especially in terms of Old Testament ethics, morals, laws, and the working out of what pleases God. In other words, we are to look at the law of Moses through the lens of the law of Christ. We are to understand the law of Moses through the eyeglasses of the law of Christ. Moses is not the final word. Jesus is the final word. And Jesus does not come to contradict Moses. Jesus comes to complete what Moses had already written down. That's the point of this passage. He came to complete what was written so that his interpretation stands. His mediation of this word stands. We're to look to him. That's why later on down the road, as we're tossed uh, back and forth between Jesus and then the law and then the prophets via an illustration on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration. You know, you, you read about that in Matthew 17, which is more than just a, a happy visitation from Moses and Elijah. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And behold, Matthew tells us, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Two pictures of the law and the prophets. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. Again, this is more than just this coincidental appearing of Moses and Elijah. This is God the Father saying, You have Moses and you have Elijah. Listen to my son and how he interprets Moses and Elijah. Listen to my son and how he explains Moses and Elijah. Listen to my son and how he mediates everything written in the law and the prophets. Listen to him. That's a safe place for us, friends. Listen to Christ, his word, and the apostles that were commissioned by him to bring us the truth of a completed revelation. 
He goes on in Matthew 5, 20. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I can't imagine what a shocker this would have been to his hearers in that day. Remember, they're in Galilee, so they're already considered somewhat outcasts. There's a mixture of Gentiles there, people who sat in darkness for hundreds of years. And they knew that miles and miles away in Jerusalem, that's where the spiritually elite were. Those were the Navy SEALs of God's people. They were the righteous ones. They were the holy ones. And Jesus comes to these Galilean people and says, unless your righteousness exceeds, surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, don't expect to enter the kingdom of heaven. I want to ask you, is righteousness a scary word to you? We've talked to, you know, friends here, and sometimes righteousness can be a, a trigger word because it, it reverts you back to legalistic ways of thinking. Well, we're not talking about self-righteousness. We are talking about righteousness. Jesus calls us to a righteousness that is both quantitatively and qualitatively greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. I showed you last week, or I tried to show you last week, that much of what Jesus was taking in his Beatitudes in the beginning of Matthew chapter 5 was taken from Isaiah chapter 61, where he grants comfort to those who are mourning in Zion, where he gives them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes and the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the comfort, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness. You see, Isaiah saw that future new covenant people. And what did he see? He saw like that man in the ministry of Jesus, trees. There are people, right? But there are trees. Isaiah saw you, new covenant believer, as an oak of righteousness, of a, a, a firmly planted tree that towers high in righteousness. That's what he saw. That, that, that's what is descriptive of the New Covenant church. Righteousness is a normal word to describe normal New Testament Christianity. Sometimes in our Reformed traditions, the only, the only thing we think of when we think of righteousness is the imputed righteousness, which is impossible for us to ever work up or attain. It's a righteousness that comes through faith and faith alone in Christ alone. That's not the only way that the New Testament refers to the word righteousness. There's an imputed righteousness, and then there is an imparted, transforming righteousness that, that, that proceeds from our lives. I mean, Romans chapter 6, Paul says this very clear, that we were once slaves of sin, and now we're slaves of righteousness. Thanks to God, be to God, he says, that we were who once... We who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which we were committed. And having been set free from sin, we become slaves of righteousness. He says we once presented our members to sin as instruments of lawlessness. But now we're to present our members as slaves to righteousness, which leads to sanctification. 
not just Romans 6, it's Ephesians as well. Chapter 4. We're called to put off the old man, the old woman, and to put on the new self. And listen, the new self which is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's not a word we should back away from, shy away from. Self-righteousness, yes, flee self-righteousness. But abide in Christ and bear the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, Paul prayed for the Philippian church that they would be able to approve what is excellent and thus be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Paul would not be praying for righteous character and righteousness to flow from these saints if it was just an impossibility. 1 Timothy 6.11 But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness. 2 Timothy 2.22 Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. Even the very scriptures that we have, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for training people up in righteousness. Finally, 1 John 2.29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be certain that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. It should not be a foreign, scary word to us. It ought to be the normal thing for which we strive, a God-honoring righteousness. And it's to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. What does that mean? Is it merely exceeding the scribes and Pharisees in its outward display? Well, to be sure that this righteousness does have external expressions, but it's not to be trumpeted out on the street corner. It's to be found in the prayer closet. It's to be the right hand not knowing what the left hand is doing when you serve the Lord. Right? It's to be seen in its motivation. He's going to contrast in the very next chapter the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees which flaunted everything they did in order to be seen by others, to be approved by others. Jesus says, no, what you should be after is the approval of my Father who sees and knows what happens in secret. It's a righteousness that should exceed the scribes and Pharisees in terms of its motivation, in terms of its inner attitude. Am I doing this in order to gain God's favor? That was the Pharisees. But am I doing this because I've been graciously and mercifully swept into the sphere of his favor and grace and mercy? Righteous works that proceed out of a thankful heart that comes from the free gift of life and righteousness. So this is not a call. Listen very carefully. This is not a call to enter the kingdom of God by works of righteousness. If you, miss, if you get that, you're, you're, getting, you're, you're walking away with something that was not preached from this pulpit today. You cannot earn God's righteousness. You cannot perform any amount of righteousness that, can, that, that will cause you to be accepted before God. You cannot do that. The only way to stand accepted before a holy, holy, holy God is to put your faith, your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone and you will be justified you will be clothed with an eternal righteousness that will never, ever fade away. This is a call not to enter the kingdom by works of righteousness. This is a call to look to Christ, of course. We enter the kingdom by faith alone in Christ alone. And the fruit that appears as a result of that saving connection to Christ 
is righteousness. That's why John would go on to say, 1 John 3.10, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, will this righteousness look perfect? No. But will this righteousness be pleasing to the Father who knows that you're doing it out of love for him? Yes. Will this righteousness sometimes be misinterpreted and misunderstood by even fellow believers? Yes. But we're to seek to always conform our righteousness to the standard of Christ as he sets it forth here, not only in the Sermon on the Mount, but in the rest of the New Testament. And now he shows us what this righteousness looks like. He gives six examples of what this righteousness looks like. And these are called the antitheses. The, 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 the antitheses, they, they, they signify almost something that seems to be opposite, but he's really not opposing anything here other than the people's misunderstanding of the Old Covenant law, the Old Testament law. D.A. Carson writes, With matchless authority, Jesus had made himself the pivotal point of history. The Old Testament points toward him, and now, having arrived, he introduces the kingdom and shows how the Old Testament finds its ultimate validity and real continuity in himself and his teaching. At the same time, Jesus must contend with another problem. He cannot assume that everything the people have heard concerning the content of the Old Testament scriptures was really in the Old Testament. This is because the Pharisees and teachers of the law regarded certain oral traditions as equal in authority with the scripture itself, thereby contaminating the teaching of scripture with some fallacious but tenaciously held interpretations. And Carson goes on to say, therefore, in each of the five blocks of material which follow, five or six, depending on how you look at it, Jesus tells something like this. You have heard that it was said, but I tell you. He does not begin these contrasts by telling them what the Old Testament said, but what, had, what they had heard it said. This is an important observation because Jesus is not negating something from the Old Testament, but something from their understanding of it. And he continues and he closes. In other words, Jesus appears to be concerned with two things. Number one, overthrowing erroneous traditions and indicating authoritatively the real direction toward which the Old Testament scriptures point. So, in other words, as we come to these antitheses, he's concerned with what the people have heard. Again, they didn't have Bibles in that day. They didn't have Bible apps and everything that we have today. Everything that was relayed to them was relayed to them by oral tradition. Whatever they had heard taught in the synagogue, whatever the scribes and Pharisees, Sadducees, whatever these people had communicated, that's what they knew. And so Jesus now goes in and says, I know that you have understood it this way, or I know that you have heard it said this way, but I say to you. And in that, but I say to you, he is doing two things. He is not only correcting in some of them what the Pharisees had taught, but most importantly, he is saying, You've heard that it was said, but as the one who came to complete the teaching of the Old Testament, this is what I say to you. This is the real direction toward which these laws ultimately pointed. We get to the first one, anger, verses 21 through 26. Notice what he says. You have heard that it was said to those of old, 
you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So he combines one of the commandments from the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Jesus says it's not enough not to commit homicide, not to go and murder someone. The righteousness that surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees gets to the very heart of murder, which is anger, seething, prolonged, unmortified anger. Unmortified anger. And he gives an example. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. What's interesting here is the word fool is used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe an unbeliever. So this could very well be, perhaps be, a warning against being too quick to pronounce unbelief or lostness to assign that to a brother or sister in Christ because they didn't do something that you felt that they should be doing. Have you ever been tempted to do that, to look at a, a professing believer and say, nah, they're not saved. They, they can't be saved. They can't be saved. Be very careful with that. It's not to say that we're not to discern. We're not to exercise discernment. We're not to test people. We're not to examine people after examining ourselves. But we should not be too quick to pronounce a person to be a fool in terms of their ignorance toward God too prematurely. The hell of fire. This is an interesting phrase here. The hell of fire. This referred to a portion, a section on the outer gates of Jerusalem where In the days of Josiah, right before Josiah, certain gods were worshipped and, for example, the pagan god Moloch and his disgusting rites included animals, uh, sorry, ch child sacrifices, which were strictly prohibited by God. This was the, the Valley of Hinnom, as it was known in that day. Josiah came in, good king, abolished these practices he defied that valley by turning it into a dump, basically. Where this false god was worshipped, he began to treat this place as the sewer of Jerusalem. All the human waste, the bodies of criminals would be thrown out there. And that was his way of desecrating this, this, this false temple, if you will, of, of, of pagan worship. And, and eventually it became a place of like you said, it was a dump. There was constant, uh, constant smoke that would ascend from this place, smoldering fires throughout this valley where people would go and just throw stuff and it'd be burning. It was like a constant thing. And eventually this became a, a, a type of image of hell where all the filth of the land would be thrown and there'd be this perpetual fire. And, and it became known as Gehenna, the hell of fire. Jesus says, to not deal with deep-rooted, deep-seated anger can and will result in the hell of fire. 
And he gives another example, verse 23. So if you were offering your gift at the altar, and there was one altar that was there in Jerusalem. So this was miles and miles away from where Galilee is and where he's teaching from. And so he's saying, he's, he's obviously implying that if you make your pilgrimage toward Jerusalem, and there you are at the altar, again, much of the Sermon on the Mount, obviously all the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is addressing people still living under the old covenant. We don't have an altar anymore. We don't have a priesthood. We don't have a temple anymore physically. So again, when we read the Sermon on the Mount, understand he's talking about life as it was in the old covenant. And so when these people were at the altar offering their animal, And there you remember that your brother has something against you. Now, this is not a minor offense. In the Greek, this is is a legitimate wrongdoing on your part. This is is a, 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 a serious sin that you have committed against your brother. Again, this is not, oh, he didn't smile at me after church. Or, oh, he did this. This is not a small thing. This is something that is serious. And as you're there offering this gift to receive forgiveness from God, and you remember that you have truly, in the eyes of God, truly offended and sinned against a fellow brother. Spiritually, obviously. He says, verse 24, leave your gift there. Can you imagine the the provoking imagery here? As you're about to put this animal on the altar to burn up for the forgiveness of your sin, you remember that you have legitimately wronged someone. I'm talking about something that you can look at the Bible and say, here, here's where I wronged you. Here's exactly where I wronged you. He says, leave your gift at the altar. Imagine leaving that animal there. Say, I got to travel back to Galilee. He says, first, leave it there and go. Go, leave the temple. You have no business seeking forgiveness from God when you yourself have legitimately wronged someone and have not made it right. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come off of your gift. It's the idea of forgiveness extended before forgiveness is received. You want to receive forgiveness, Jesus says you must extend forgiveness. Forgiven people are forgiving people. Always remember that. Forgiven people are forgiving people. He says, verse 25, he gives another example. Someone who's not your brother. Verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. In other words, try to settle things out of court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge. Now he's talking about if you've offended not only a brother, but if you've truly wronged someone in the world and they have a legitimate accusation against you that will result in your having to pay some sort of sentence, settle it out of court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus is saying that you're, as his disciples in this upside-down kingdom, we are to do everything we can to, one, have a sensitive conscience. And if, if I have truly wronged someone, 
I'm not talking about somebody's offended because you didn't smile at them. That's, that's, that's childish. Or they didn't greet you after church. I'm talking about a real offense that you can look at in Scripture before God in Judgment Day honesty and say, yes, you know what? I sinned against you. Jesus is saying his disciples are to be quick to make those things right. And even outside of the church, to come to terms quickly, seek forgiveness from your accuser. Try to work it out quick. And then he moves on to the next section. Not just vilifying anger, but he goes on to unmortified lust. Unmortified lust. He says, verse 27, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. So again, he quotes the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, notice the authority with which he speaks. Who can speak like this but God? Who can quote the Old Testament law and say, but I say to you, this is because he is the final and ultimate authority and interpreter of the Old Testament. The law of Moses must be viewed through the lens of the law of Christ. You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, it was not enough to refrain from physical adultery. The new and greater Moses steps on the scene and says, even if you lust after another individual, you've committed adultery in the heart. You've committed adultery internally. You see, this teaches us, among other things, that God is ultimately and first and foremost concerned with what's going on in the heart. Really, I mean, he's talking about the imagination, our inward man, our inward woman. Peter would describe the false teachers in 2 Peter chapter 2 as those who come in pretending to be religious, but their eyes are full of adultery. Why is that? Because their hearts are full of adultery. Their hearts are full of adultery. This, this lust here, this, this speaks of desire. This speaks of intense burning. This speaks of a gaze, an internal gaze. And now, it's interesting, if you study church history, some early church fathers, such as Origen, took this literally, as we're going to see in a while, and the, the, the measures to pluck out an eye and to cut off a right hand if it was causing you to sin, Origen took these words seriously and actually castrated himself. Obviously, as he's going to go on to teach here, he's not talking physically. Because, friends, if you gouge out your eyes and cut off your right hand or castrate yourself, your male organ, it's not going to take away the temptation to lust and burn in the heart. The problem is internally, in a twisted imagination, in a corrupt imagination. He goes on and he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's 
interesting if you read the accounts of the Old Testament and those acts and actions leading to adultery, they almost always begin with the eyes. Not just adultery, but bringing down an entire people. Achan brought down all the people there in the early chapters of Joshua. Why? Because he saw this forbidden Babylonian garment and this treasure, and he coveted it with his eyes. David was up on his roof, and he saw Bathsheba bathing, and that seeing there led to adultery and murder and eventually a divided kingdom. It was Eve that saw that the tree was good for food and didn't cut it off there. In the scriptures, the right eye and the right hand are known as the predominant members of the body. It's the, it was the best eye. It's interesting that in the Old Testament, the right hand is used in Isaiah 57, 8 to refer to, as a, a, a euphemism, if you will, for the male sexual organ. It's the right hand. Uh, Jesus may just be simply saying, hey, that which is most valuable to you, be ready and willing to part with it. Because the only alternative to not mortifying and putting sin to death is, well, notice what he says. For, middle of verse 29, it is better for you that one of your members, that you lose them, than that your whole body be thrown into hell. I know a, a, a deaf individual, and we think sometimes to ourselves, if I didn't have to hear the things I hear, if I, didn't, if I was blind, if I didn't have to see the things that I see, I would just be better off as a Christian. No, you would not. Because this, one of the, this individual that I know, and, 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 and knowing this person for quite some time, is one of the most sexually corrupt people that I know. The imagination is twisted. The, it doesn't matter what we lose ultimately, but Jesus is saying it's better to lose, which, lose that which is precious to you than to be thrown into hell. That's the alternative. He's calling us to take our sin seriously. What's the avenue that's causing you to sin? Cut it off and throw it away. Don't temporarily disable it. Don't temporarily do this. This is, this is, a, this is a parting with something. Albert Martin has a famous illustration where uh, a person who's not taking lust seriously, he takes a dull parry knife, a butter knife, and he's just lightly scratching his hand. That doesn't do anything. The call is severity. Taking measures to ensure that you do not fall into a place of spiritual adultery in the imagination, in the heart. What's fuel to help you in this? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, as we saw last week. They shall see God. And so I ask you this morning, what is that right eye that is causing you to sin? You think you need it? You think, I, I can't part with this, but if it's causing you to sin, you're called to gouge it out. What, what, what right hand are you unwilling to what is that right hand for you? If your right hand, look at verse 30, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Again, it's interesting that in Jesus' day, 
the Valley of Hinnom was known as a, as, a, as a trash heap, an ash heap for all the garbage and the waste of the land. And Jesus says that if you have an eye that is causing you to sin again and again and a hand that is causing you to sin again, again and again, that's waste. That's garbage. That deserves to be thrown in the ash heap of the universe. Hell, the hell of fire that never burns out. Jesus is calling us to take our sin with the utmost seriousness. And all the means of grace are there for help. The word, which is able to purify your mind. Prayer, which is able to purify your heart. Fellowship, able to challenge you, pray with you, lead you in the way that you ought to go. And naturally, he goes on to the next antithesis. Divorce. It was also said, verse 31, whoever divorces his wife, Let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. In Jesus' day, I mean, I've read the list of all the things that could warrant divorce. If your wife didn't cook the way she was supposed to cook, you could divorce her, and you had the backing of the religious leaders. If she accidentally burned dinner, you could divorce her. I mean, the list goes on and on. It's actually just ridiculous, some of the things that you can read about in history. In Jesus' day, marriage, as it is in our day, was viewed as such a small thing in the eyes of humanity. He says, if you flippantly divorce, except on the ground of sexual immorality... He's quoting the Old Testament here. And in the Old Testament, it speaks of her doing something that is indecent, immoral, which leaves the door open to a lot of things, makes her commit adultery. She enters into an adulterous marriage. It's interesting that even as Christians today who engage in flippant divorce, they know that they're going into into another adulterous marriage, an affair, And yet, they're like, well, grace covers it all. I'm saved by grace. It's okay. I'm saved. The Lord approves of my new marriage. It's not taking the words of Christ seriously. It's not taking the words of Paul seriously in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If it's not on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. It's interesting that the call to deal with lust comes right before this act of adultery because lust is where adultery begins. Unmortified lust is where it leads to. John Owen has a famous saying that every single lust would have full-blown adultery. In other words, every single sinful inclination of anger would, if you let it, have its run its course all the way to murder. Every seed of sin that arises in the heart Will, would, if not prevented, have its full-blown effect in going headlong into whatever sin it is. That's what lust leads to, is full-blown, family-shattering, heartbroken spouse, devastated children. The world paints it as no, no big deal. I mean, just look at the way the world portrays adultery today. It's a fun thing. It, it, it's, it's, it's a thrilling thing. 
but it never ever shows you the devastating effects of this, the long-term effects of this, the, the identity crisis that hits people with this. That's why we're to listen to Christ in all matters of ethics and morals and righteousness. He moves on in verse 33, talking about oaths and honesty. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. People were known to swear by various things. I say, you heard it today, I swear on my mother's grave. I swear on my great-grandmother's sewing machine. She loved that thing. I, I swear on this or that. Jesus says, you don't have to do that. Don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem. These are examples of how people would swear. I swear by the very heaven of heavens. I swear by the earth. I swear by Jerusalem and all that is holy in Jerusalem. He says, don't do that. That's the city of the great king. He says, verse 36, do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Or some translations, from the evil one. Especially as parents, we should, our yes should be yes and our no, no. Right? We should never have to say, I pinky promise. I cross my heart, hope to die. We should be men and women of integrity that just says, this is how it is. Because we're then teaching our children that they have to, I promise, I triple dog dare, you know, I, you know, I do all these things, I swear by this, I swear by that, I promise, I promise, I promise. Man, those are, those are some hard folks to believe when they have to promise by this and swear by that and promise for this. Just let your yes be yes. This is all uh, the righteousness that he calls us to that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. That of the scribes and the Pharisees. He's calling us just to be legit, genuine, honest people who say what we mean and mean what we say. Friends, this is and can be a challenge. But under the new covenant, this is a righteousness that is attainable, that is possible by the help of God's Spirit and by the word of instruction that we have in the Scriptures. And he moves on to verse 38. You also have heard that it was said. You have heard that it was said. He speaks of retaliation here. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. There are a lot of Christians today who would, would read these passages and uh, resort to a type of passivism. And, you know, there's no such thing as uh, defending your, your family, protecting yourself, protecting the innocent. Jesus says, after all, you know, if anyone who's evil out there, just let them do what they're going to do. He's talking about in the context of court, in the context of uh, suing you, in the context of the courtroom. As he's going to go on, to, as we're going to see later on, um, especially in the book of Acts, 
Whenever the church is persecuted, the church wasn't to take legal action per se. There might be times because of a certain law that allows the church to, to be able to utilize its, its rights in a land. But as far as revenge and retaliation, Jesus says, my church is to not be about that. My church is to not be a people who are bent on retaliation, bent on vengeance, bent on eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, and again, this is in the context of legitimate religious persecution, turn to him the other also. Roman soldiers were known for taking tunics and for uh, uh, you know, having the normal people, the people of the day, carry their possessions down the road with them. I mean, they had the right, the freedom to, as they're walking from one city to another, pick a guy and say, hey, I want you to carry my stuff for this mile. Jesus says, go with him two miles. I mean, we see a little bit of that in Simon of Cyrene when the Roman soldier looks as Jesus is carrying his cross and says, you're going to carry his cross. You, didn't, you, 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 you couldn't resist them. Jesus says, not only do not resist them, but go the extra mile. Go the extra distance. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus says our, our view towards possessions in this world should be so loose that we realize that this is not our home. This is not our home. And we get to the last one. You've heard that it was said, verse 30, 43. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, this is the one where this is not just the quotation of the Old Testament scriptures. Love your neighbor. Yes, that's in the Old Testament. But the phrase, you shall hate your enemy, that was never commanded in the Old Testament. It was never commanded by Moses or anywhere in the law. This was actually rabbinical teaching that taught that Gentiles could be despised and hated by Jews. And so Jesus, I believe here, up until this point, has been quoting Old Testament. You've heard that it was said, but my authority stands over and above all of that. Now he quotes the Old Testament, but he's also alluding to rabbi's tradition, that you should hate your enemy. You shouldn't loathe your enemies. Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Do you see how the context in this whole sermon is religious persecution? I mean, he started with that in the Beatitudes and he continues that here. So whether an enemy slaps you, wants to strip you of your... He says, rejoice. It's not going to be easy. But be willing to part with this world. Pray for those who persecute you. What's one of the ways you can love a persecutor is praying that God would open their eyes. I mean, you read of Polycarp and some of these early church fathers and the way they prayed for their persecutors would actually move their persecutors to consider Christ. I mean, you see a portion of that in the Roman centurion as Jesus is being nailed to the cross. And he's saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Many scholars believe that the way it's worded there is that he didn't just say that one time, but the entire time he is pleading with his father to forgive them throughout the entire course of the crucifixion. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That eventually had an impact on that Roman soldier who, at the end of it all, says, truly, this was the Son of God. Jesus says, love those who persecute you. Pray for them. 
so that, verse 45, you may be called sons, so you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. In other words, this reflects the very heart of God. There's a lot of people today talking about the heart of God and, and what the heart of God looks like and what it doesn't look like. Well, Jesus tells us here what the heart of God looks like. Look at verse 45, the middle. For he, your father, makes his son, S-U-N, rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Again, the culture of agriculture here, they, they, they needed rain. They needed sun. And Jesus says, you want to be called sons of your father in heaven? Well, look at the way he treats his enemies. He still causes the sun to rise, not only on his children, but on his enemies. And as far as rain, he brings rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. That unrighteous farmer that refuses to acknowledge his glory and his worth, screaming in the heavens, he says, your father in heaven still brings that man, that wicked man, rain. Verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? It's easy to love those who love us, isn't it? Easy to be kind to those who are kind to us. Easy to be gracious and merciful towards those who are gracious and merciful to us. And Jesus says, what good is that? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? He says even the lost love their fellow lost people. And if you greet only your brothers, verse 47, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. I mean, antithesis after antithesis, example after example, Jesus is laying into his disciples, again, not to crush them, to make them call out for salvation, but he's saying, this is the standard in my kingdom. Purity of heart. Dealing in great measure, dealing with your sin. Not flippantly divorcing because of what you've heard from your culture around you. Retaliation? He says, go the extra mile. And we see examples of this even in the early church where they are persecuted, they don't resist, and then they emerge out of that beating, rejoicing, considering themselves blessed to be having suffered for Christ's name. And then in verse 48, we come to the end and he says, you therefore, in light of all of this, must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. How would that have reached the ears of those people in that day? How does it fall upon your ears today? Now this can be a very dangerous sentence here because many within the church have looked at this And have said things like, you see, Jesus calls us to perfection. Therefore, absolute perfection is possible and attainable. And I know that you've met individuals like that. A type of perfectionism. Well, what's interesting is the word perfect here is teleos in the Greek. It's used 19 times in the New Testament. 11 times it's referred to as perfect. But again, the word perfect in the first century is very different from the way we use perfect today. We say things like, well, I'm not perfect. That means absolutely sinless without flaw. That's the way we use it today. But listen to how James uses the same word, teleos, 
in James 1.4. Let steadfastness have its full effect on you so that you may be perfect and complete. Do you see the synonym? Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That means thoroughly filled out and mature. That's the biblical meaning of the word perfect. James 3.2, we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's able to control his tongue. He's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. He's not saying he's reached a, a state of unceasing perfection. That's not what he's talking about here. He's saying a state, a, 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 a posture, I should say, of wholeness. Show me a man who can control his tongue, which the Proverbs talk about again and again and again. That's a complete man, a mature man, a perfect man in that sense. Again, this word is used 19 times. Seven times in the New Testament, it's translated as the word mature. And so it could be that Jesus is saying, therefore, you must be mature and complete as your Father in heaven as is mature and complete, whole, filled out. It's the same word used in Ephesians 4 when Paul tells us that Christ gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, listen, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. That mature manhood is the same word that Jesus uses in verse 48. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. He says, Paul says, this is mature manhood, maturity. And it's used also, last verse, Colossians 4.12. He says, Epaphras, Paul says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand, here's the word, mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Jesus is calling his disciples to a wholesome life marked by godly maturity maturity that is striving for purity of heart maturity that expresses itself in being quick to deal with sin quick to deal with anything that could cause you to stumble that's what biblical maturity is it looks to christ as the ultimate and final and absolute authority over all of the old testament that is a mature life a mature life, a mature man, a mature woman is one who listens to and leans upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his authoritative teaching over absolutely everything. This is the call. This is the demand. And this is what is granted to us in the new covenant. Life, blessedness, wholeness, and maturity. May God help us as his people to strive for this.